Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Well, if you did not recognize uh, that rendition of Silent Night, that means you haven't yet seen the very merry, unconventional Christmas special that debuted last night at seven or six o'clock, rather. And man, I'm telling you, it is fantastic. It was so much fun to watch. And so I want to thank all of those who made that happen in a strange year when our usual Broadway-style Christmas production uh, could not occur. And, and I, I got to tell you, I didn't really have a vision for this and couldn't see how it was going to come together. But Emily Brown and her crew, Scott Flanders, the director, his team, uh, all of our staff just did an amazing job. And if you watch it, you'll see the editing is just, it's brilliant. It's artistic. And so I got to give Butch King some kudos. I'm telling you, Butch stayed up many, many, many nights. I don't even know how many hours he put into editing that with the help of William and, and Chris and a few others. But it's just so well done, and I hope you get to see it. Now, one of my favorite parts of that was seeing people's homes. So, you know, I always enjoy the way those who produce our worship experiences get us out by the fire pit like they did today, or to, to some people's homes. We can see our peeps because we're not here at the church in a place where we can socialize in the same way. And it always does my heart good to see our folks, my people, in their homes or wherever they are. So last night, there were just lots of pictures. Our home was there. You're your home was probably there of people's homes and how they had decorated, and that was appropriate. Because after last week's sermon, I got some emails and texts from people who were saying, I don't know if I like having my bubble burst when it comes to Christmas. Now, you got to know this. I am the original father of Christmas. Chris, Chris Clifford does not love Christmas any more than Jim Balkum always has. I love decorating. I love celebrating. This is the most wonderful time of the year, even 2020. I love, love, love Christmas. So, you know, it, it kind of hurt my feelings that I had actually hurt somebody else's feelings by busting their bubbles. I mean, they go, can we just, they essentially were saying to me, just let me hang on to my myth. Why are you doing this to me? One father even asked me, should I even have manger scenes in my house? I was like, what? I, look, I grew up playing with a manger scene. We had them all over the house. Uh, my dad remembers, because I've always been a little weird, how I put the sheep on top of the stable. I thought they'd like it up there. You know, it's quiet, it's peaceful, and we have them all over the house. They're all over my office. I've collected them for years. So listen, I got to tell you, I just got to tell you that celebrating Christmas the way we do, albeit a little too commercialized sometimes, it's not a problem because symbol does not exist just to convey fact. Symbol exists to convey something deeper that we can't really express with language. And so a lot of what you have in your home is simple. I'll show you my home to give you a symbol. Okay, somebody asked me, well, what do you do with the star? Well, what do I do? I hang a four-foot lighted one on the front of my house with an extension ladder. That's what I do. Debbie claims someday I'm going to die doing this. And if I do, it didn't happen this year. You got one more year with me. But if it happens one year, remember I loved you. But here it is. Is that star, it is a bear to get up there under the lighted wreath that's on the top. Listen, wreaths are not in the Bible, right? 
but you have them in your home. Christmas trees are not in the Bible too, right? Santa's not in the Bible. I, he's not there. People say, well, the spirit of Santa is there. Okay, whatever, I, whatever you say. You got this stuff at your house. I got it at my house too. Christmas trees are not in the Bible. Yes, there's another star. That's a Moravian star. It's like the one in the front. I love the star of Christmas. I just know the story. And so I recognize it wasn't probably hovering over the head of Mary and Joseph in the way that we envision So what? It's part of the story for a reason, and that is to convey the hope of the light of Jesus Christ. That's the reason the symbol is in the Bible, too. So when we look at this, this is, you say, well, okay, thank goodness, Pastor Jim, Dr. J has a Christmas tree. You're wrong. I don't have one. I got two. Man, we got to have the kids tree and the adult tree. That's the way it works in, in our home. So, you know, look, there's Debbie and me. We're happy in front of these symbols of, of Christmas. Do I have manger scene in my house? No. Okay. Here's the thing. I do not have a crash in my house. I got a bunch of them. I got a bunch of them. So there's the one on the mantle. And then here's, here's another one. This one actually comes from another part of the world. It's kind of cool. That's in another part of the house. And if that's not enough, I really get into little Christmas. I never collected Christmas villages, right? I just got the churches from those villages. I've got like, I don't even know how many. People knew I collected them, gave them to me over the year. They are everywhere in my house at Christmas. And if you've been there, staff have been there for staff party, can't do it this year. They're everywhere. I love them. I love this stuff. I got to admit, I don't like putting it away, but I love putting it up and putting it out. And before I finish this, let me tell you that our dining room table is already decorated and will not change between now and Christmas Eve to welcome you into our home on Christmas Eve because that's the way we're going to need to celebrate and have our Christmas Eve service this year. It will be streamed from my house and I think the homes of some others as they sing with us. We will sing carols. We will light Advent candles. No, Advent wreaths are not in the Bible. They're still great symbols, ways to celebrate. And as we light the Christ candle together, it will just be phenomenal. I want you to be there, so be careful that you're ready to tune in at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. It's perfectly situated so that you can celebrate with your family and you can incorporate it into your Christmas home dinner, which is what we hope you will do. So we're really looking forward to that, and I think it will be awesome. Now, why did I choose to bust these myths? Not to bust your bubble, but to get us deeper into the story to help us understand the story better because there's nothing wrong with the symbolism. There's nothing wrong with these things as long as we understand the real story of the incarnation and what God was doing, what he was up to. So I'm doing this for fun because I think it's fun to bust my myths and learn new things. I think that's fun. Call me weird. I told you I put sheep on the roof, but I enjoy knowing something differently than I know it before. I'm always learning. So let's look again at a few of these myths with a couple added this time because today we look at the Gospel of Luke and as we do, we really get into where some of our deepest mythology comes from apart from the kings. So I I gave this one to you last week. I asked you, is Jesus born at night? Now, do you remember how this works, right? So there's confirmed, there's plausible, and there's Help me in the house, would you? People need to hear some noise. There's busted, okay? So 
Jesus was born during the night. One, two, three. Yeah, that one's plausible. I mean, we don't know. Yeah, we don't. It's plausible. We got no clue what time of the day Jesus was born. In fact, the most important thing we can say about the timing of the incarnation is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4. He says, when the time was right, Christ came. It was God's timing. It was, it was a different kind of timing than we tend to focus on. The chronology is not anywhere near as important as is the timing that God chose. 25th of December, it doesn't matter when we celebrate this again, and this will sort of tie in today. I think Jesus probably was born during Passover just like he died during Passover. I think there's a connection there that we see in the Bible, but that's only plausible too. I can't prove it. I can pretty much prove he was born in the spring. What difference does it make when we celebrate because we're thousands of years later, and the real mystery is the timing of the incarnation? when God found it right to come to our world. So Jesus was born in December. That one's, come on now. That one's one, two, three, busted. It's more fun to say busted. It's a lot more fun. Uh, here's, here's some that I, I've thrown in, you know, last week, this week. I'm going to deal with this one today, and I'm also going to deal with it on the 27th. There's going to be a bonus sermon in this series because I didn't think I was preaching on the 27th, but I am. And uh, the following Sunday, one of my colleagues will preach. And so uh, I'll deal with this one in more detail in two weeks. But there have been a couple of people that this is the one that's bothered them both. Most, they really want to think of Mary and Joseph as being very poor. Somehow this fits their story. My question is why? And I think the answer is, if we can make them different than us, if we can make them exceptional, then we're off the hook in being used to incarnate Christ in the way that they were. And so people want to say, well, you know, Mary in the Magnificat, in chapter 1 of Luke, she sings about her humble estate. What they don't realize is almost everyone in Jesus' day in Palestine was of humble estate. Only a few wealthy people, the governors and the people associated with them, the religious leaders and the people associated with them, only a few people had any real means. Most people were poor. So this one is is confirmed. Joseph and Mary were just regular middle-class people. Some other people talk about the offering that was made for Jesus at the temple. I'm going to talk about that one in two weeks. That was the common offering of their day. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a tecton in the Greek. A tecton's a really interesting word. It's the same word from which we get architect. So tecton in Jesus' day, that word means craftsman. And we've traditionally said, and this is another myth I'm really not going to deal with, but we've said Joseph was a carpenter, a wood carpenter, because that's the vision we tend to have, and that's where the King James Version and its translation went. But it's doubtful, I think, that Joseph was a carpenter. And the reason is because Joseph was from Nazareth, or at least Joseph perhaps had moved from Bethlehem to Nazareth to find his fortune And Nazareth was the place where all the stone was cut to build the second temple. In fact, many of the buildings in Jerusalem were built out of stone cut from Nazareth. It was a mill town. So almost everyone who lived in Nazareth was connected to the rock trade. And so I think tecton probably means that Joseph was a stonecutter. 
And that gives deeper meaning to a lot of scriptures. So think about Jesus quoting the Psalms and saying, the building block that was rejected has become the cornerstone of a whole new world. How often Jesus referred to stone, how he called Peter rocky. Think about these things. It's really cool that Jesus might have that connection. And there's a cool connection to Bethlehem too. These are just regular people. That's all they are. They're regular people that God could use. How about this one? And this one's going to really upset some people. I know, but I got to get this out there. Jesus was born in a stable. One, two, three. Eh, plausible. It's plausible. Maybe. I don't think it's likely. I'm tempted to say busted on this one because I don't think it's likely. I'll show you in a minute why. How about this one? This one I hope doesn't upset you. The only people who visited the infant were dirty shepherds. Now, you know the the wise men weren't there. So you're tempted to say, okay, that one's got to be right. One, two, three, it's busted. And this is the reason why. The shepherds, very likely, were not the only people there. That's number one. It's just that their visit was so intriguing and interesting And that Luke includes it for a reason. But the second thing is they weren't filthy shepherds. They were very important workers. People who tended the sheep that were used for the Passover slaughter every year. They were the ones who bred. Bethlehem was known for this. The house of bread, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, was known as the place where the consecrated shepherds, specially chosen, specially trained, where these shepherds kept the spotted lambs that were used at Passover in Jerusalem. And this was a much sought-after job. People waited in line to get this job. People hoped they could have this job. It was pretty lucrative as shepherding went. And so, therefore, these Bethlehem shepherds were probably keepers of the spotted lambs, breeders of the spotted lambs. Now, think about how amazing this is, okay? The breeders and keepers of the spotted lamb visited the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, on the night after his birth. That's really powerful symbolism, and we tend to miss it. What if it was during Passover? It goes one step deeper, one step further. The popular version of the Christmas story is a literary composite. I've said it's something like a mosaic, and that's okay in some ways. In fact, all of the church fathers like Origen, they called the Gospels the fourfold gospel. They saw Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four canonical Gospels. They saw them all as one whole. And and they thought that the different angles, it's like a mosaic that you put together of pictures that are taken from a different angle. They thought they, they could be pulled together to teach us something. But to demythologize sometimes, it will help us to pull them apart, to understand why each of the gospel writers told the story the way they did. So we've gathered these little bits and pieces and we've built a picture. But much of what we assume about Christmas is either untrue or it is unfounded. So let me give you a pretty good example here. How much of what we think we know about Christmas comes from one verse in the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 2, verse 7 in the King James Version, which all of us heard at Christmas and still hear at Christmas. And she, that is Mary, brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes 
and she laid him in a manger, read the rest with me, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, you know how this story goes. Mary and Joseph, they get to the Econo Lodge of Bethlehem, poor as they were. There was nowhere to stay. When they get to the Econo Lodge, the innkeeper comes out. There is no innkeeper in this story. But anyway, in our minds there is and says, sorry, didn't you see the sign flashing out front? No vacancy. Bethlehem is full. And they go, man, this is not good because Mary, I think, I think you're about to have a baby. And, and so they go, where should we go? Ah, there's a stable. And so they go to a stable, whole bunches of animals, dirty place, and they have the baby in a stable, and then they put the baby in a feeding trough for animals. That's the way we know the story. But that's not what Luke says. Now, does it matter to you what Luke actually says? Well, it does to me. Not in the mythology or the symbolism of Christmas so much as in the reality of the story. And so here's the thing that he says. He uses a Greek word, and the Greek word is a really interesting word. It's katalamatai or katalamatium, one or the other. And that word literally means guest room or guest chamber. So what really happened? If that's what he said, there is no inn. That is also the word that could be used for in, but that's not the primary meaning of the word. What really happens is that Joseph and Mary go back to Joseph's ancestral home. Now, I don't know how much you know about Middle Eastern hospitality or even hospitality anywhere for that matter, but what do you think is the possibility that Joseph's own family did not welcome Mary and Joseph somewhere into their home. The possibility is almost zero. They had relatives there. So they go to stay with the relatives, but everybody, all these good citizens, come back to that one in a moment, all of these people had to be taxed. And so all these people were back home. This was a big homecoming celebration. You know how some things that are hard are still fun? Like, have you ever been to a funeral? And the funeral's awful because you're losing someone you love, but it's the only time your whole family's ever gotten together and you're standing around saying we should do this more often and I hate what made this happen, but wow, is it great to see everybody. Well, nobody likes taxes, I'm pretty sure. And that was the reason everybody came home, but everyone was home. And it was time for Mary to give birth to Jesus. And Joseph was such a good citizen, going to come back to that in a moment, that he goes to be registered for the tax, even though Mary is very pregnant and probably pretty uncomfortable. I would guess no women. I do not know personally. Don't email me on that one. They get to their house. The house is totally full. There's nowhere to sleep. They didn't have beds anyway. They had pallets. There are no pallets available. And Joseph's father, grandfather, whoever is there, says, you know what, I tell you what, why don't we give you the whole back of the house? That'll give you some privacy. And what you need to know is that the back of the house in Jesus' day was often a cave-like structure. Still is if you go there today. A cave-like structure. And animals were often in the house. And mangers were just in common homes. It'd be like you're having a dog bed in your home. Because these animals, people only had a few of them. These weren't farmers. They weren't herders. They were tradesmen. And so where they were was probably the back of the house. And that tells you who might have been there. Because what other possibility do you think? That all of Joseph's family was around. And Joseph, I got to think in my brain, the firstborn son in the family, gives birth 
to a son his first, maybe the first grandchild in the family, do you really believe that everybody stayed away? No! They came and took Polaroids. They came and saw they were there. This is a common family surrounded by a family. The only thing that makes this birth extraordinary is that God is the Father and the Holy Spirit is the one who's made Mary pregnant and this, this is the birth of the Savior of the world. But Joseph doesn't tell us it was that exceptional otherwise. In fact, he spends very little time on the birth. So what happened when? Let's think about Luke. Luke doesn't tell us that is. Luke's story And you've got to know some things about the gospel of Luke in order to understand how he tells the story. Okay, so Luke has some concerns in mind. First of all, Luke wants to present the Christ to erudite Greco-Roman readers in the context of Jewish history, or Roman history, rather. That's a typo on my part. Roman history. What you need to know is that the writer of Luke, probably a traveling companion of Paul, was probably himself a Gentile convert, or at the very least was very concerned with Gentile conversion, somebody, somebody commissions him to write a two-part piece, Luke and Acts. They're all one book, not two, even though they're listed differently in your Bible. And what he offers is an apologia for the early church, which is becoming very Gentile, And he is giving a gospel that is fit for Paul and those that Paul is reaching with the churches he's building. And so he has different concerns than Matthew does. Matthew, a Jew writing to Jews about how Jesus has come for everyone. Luke, probably a Gentile, writing to Gentiles for sure, from one of the major cities in Asia Minor. And his concern is to present Jesus in a different way. Now, what do you know about Greco-Roman culture? Extremely advanced for its time. Great philosophy. Fantastic ethics. If you wanted to learn about ethics, this is who you leaned on. A lot of awareness of science. How births happen. Things like that. A whole lot of awareness of science and a lot of awareness of Roman history. These people are concerned with being citizens of the Roman Empire, which is fairly elite. So Jesus is the Christ. He comes from the line of David. He's born in Bethlehem, as the prophecy said. In chapter 1, there's the intriguing story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. John the Baptist is the forerunner. I don't deal with that in this series, but you might want to read it. And then there are these angel heralds that say really important things. Like when the angels talk to the shepherds, what do they say? On earth, peace and goodwill to all, to all with whom he is, he is pleased. So then there's the story of Simeon and Anna, which I will deal with on the 27th. And it's a really important part of Luke's story, but we don't include it in our understanding. Jesus says the Christ, there's a census and taxing. That's not in Matthew. Not in John and Mark, because they don't care. It's not in Matthew. And the reason he tells about this census and taxing is he wants you to tell you about these Roman leaders. There is the Caesar, and then there is Quirinius, the governor of Syria. He includes not Herod. Herod, remember, is the puppet leader who's a Jew. He includes these Roman leaders and puts it in the context of Roman history. Then there are these sanctified shepherds, And really important to him, there is the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth so important in the Gospel of Luke? 
Well, first of all, let's recognize that Luke tells us exactly what he's doing. I decided to write a Greco-Roman history, a Greco-Roman novel. I decided to write an orderly account, a chronological account, a picture of the way this fits in Roman history. And then in Luke 1, 34 through 35, which we won't read today, Mary is visited by the Holy Spirit, visited by an angel, who tells her that the Holy Spirit has made her pregnant, explains to her what's about to happen, and Mary asked the question that any Greco-Roman, scientifically aware citizen would have asked. Into the mouth of Mary goes this question, how can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Do you get what he's doing here? He's got to help Greco-Roman Gentiles with no Jewish understanding. He's got to help them understand how it is possible that a young commoner of the kingdom, that a young citizen of Rome would turn up pregnant. Really important to his readers. So Luke's two agendas to present Christ to the erudite Roman readers in the context of Roman history, and second, to present Jesus as a citizen, reformer, ethicist, and philosopher. The Jesus of Luke is very different than the Jesus of Mark or Matthew, extremely different than the Jesus of John. Jesus is a rational citizen of the kingdom. He is no threat to governors or governments. He is someone who teaches an ethic that anyone could believe in, even if they don't know he's the Son of God. He is teaching a philosophy that makes sense. Jesus is trying to reform the culture in which he is a good citizen. See? This is what Luke wants you to know. Let's wrap this one up before we actually read the story now that I've told you all about it, because what he wants to do here is he wants to show that Jesus makes a resolute movement to the cross as a martyr, not a rebel. Do you remember the story in Luke, the way Luke tells us? Is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the enemy? No. He wants to set Jesus free. He tries to. Washes his hands. See how Jesus is no threat to the Roman government. It is Herod that is the problem. And Luke sets up these self-righteous Jews as the antagonists of his story. Herod's the one, and all of his stoogy priests, high priests, they're the ones that want Jesus gone, and they're the problem. It's the overly religious people that are the problem. Look in Luke 23, 44 through 47. Only Luke tells it like this. It's about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See how resolute he is. And then listen, when he'd said this, he breathed his last, and the centurion, the Roman centurion, John Wayne, the Roman centurion says, seeing what had happened, he praises God And he says, surely this was a righteous man. See how the Gentiles could see it? This is the way Luke tells the story. He also wants us to know that there is an extension now of redemption to everyone who accepted Jesus' rational teaching, teaching that was plainly true. 
If I wanted to teach about Luke in a seminary class, I'd go straight to the story of the prodigal son, which is found nowhere but the gospel of Luke. In Luke 15, 28 through 32, we find the conclusion of that story where a young man, a restless young man, has taken his inheritance and squandered it in loose living, and now he's come home. He's fallen at his father's feet who welcomes him home, and he asks his father if he can be a servant. His servant, his father throws a big party, kills the fatted lamb and, and, and calf, and throws a huge party, and the older brother representing these religious people, these Jews. The older brother won't accept the Gentile younger brother back to the banquet table. He sulks. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But he had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. The Gentiles were dead. They were lost. But now they're found. And there's a place for everyone at the banquet table. Now, this won't take long now that you know everything you know. When you read Luke's Christmas story, You have to understand these are the messages he wants to impart. Luke 2, 1 through 20, the most famous reading of any Christmas story in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria, and everyone, all the good citizens, went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, from the town of Nazareth, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. Notice that because Luke is talking to people in Asia Minor primarily, to Gentiles, he's got to explain to them where Bethlehem and Nazareth are. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child because they were good citizens and they were doing it right. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. That's the NIV, and it's the right translation. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will be the cause of great joy for who? All the people. Everybody. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find that baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it, everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds said to them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, do you see how we tend to fill in the blanks with stuff that Luke's not trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that common citizens, regular people, were used exceptionally by God. And that means you and I can be used exceptionally by God too. And he's trying to tell us that when they went home, the place was crowded. And so they had Jesus in the most common of ways. Nothing really uncommon about it, but by the shepherd's visit, he's trying to tell us, see, this was an ordinary birth, but an extraordinary thing was happening when God brought his son into the world. One quick message to why do the gospel writers tell these stories differently? Because though the truth of Jesus is always the same, it is always our responsibility to shape the story for those we are witnessing to. We've got to ask ourselves, what is important for that person to hear about my story and Jesus' story so that Jesus might be as life-changing for them as he is for us? It's really an important message if you think about it. So Luke's five stories, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John, the angel announcement to Mary, the birth of Jesus, told in just a couple of sentences, if you'll notice, the visitation of the shepherds, and finally, the temple presentation, which I'll deal with on the 27th. So let's take a look, shall we? Let's look and see if we've figured out what is fact and what is maybe not. First of all, peasant parents, stable birth like a farm, filthy shepherds, one, two, three, busted, busted. Celebrating Christmas with symbols, loving the season of life, knowing that the incarnation of God's only son in the world cannot be captured in words alone, Confirmed. For God's sake, have a Merry Christmas. Enjoy the symbols. But use them, especially if you have children, to teach the story. My dad used to make us put the wise men across the room, for example, from the main crash. And we'd say, why do we have to do that, Dad? And he'd say, because they showed up a little later. I learned. Years later, I remember the message. Even a Christmas tree can be used to say, To a child, you're raising up in the way of the Lord. You know, this reminds me of the light of Jesus, how he lights up everything. How about this one? God is in the details. That's what Luke teaches us. God is in the details, and salvation is for everyone. Confirmed. That's the message. The message is that God sent his one and only son to the world, That everybody who believed in his teaching, claimed his cross, and his empty tomb as their own would be saved. That's no myth. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for the opportunity just to look at the story once again. Sometimes when stories become really familiar to us, we miss the details. Thanks for the chance to remember how amazing 
It was and is that Jesus came incarnate in physical form to this world. Thank you for the way Matthew shaped the story, for his audience, the way Luke did it, for the fact that you've given us the creativity to tell the story again and again, knowing our audience, telling them what they need to know about the Savior of the world. And Lord, thank you that anyone listening right now, anyone, can indeed be at peace with you and receive eternal life if they will only say, Lord, be born in my life. Be incarnate in me. I accept your cross and your forgiveness. I accept your empty tomb and your recreation. I accept your gift of eternity, and I will worship you forever. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Columbia, I love you. I miss you if I haven't seen you in a while. I am praying for you. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.